So this week, we are going to move into the final two weeks of our series, God Part One, where we've been walking through the book of Exodus, trying to find out who the God of the Bible is by looking at what he does. You know, that age-old idea that actions speak louder than words. And today, we are going to move into the last major action by God in the book of Exodus, when God seeks to dwell with his people directly, to live amongst them, to reside with them as human beings in this world. And it's a, it's a super important topic. This idea of God dwelling with human beings is actually going to take up two weeks. We're going to focus this week on how it fits into the second act of Exodus that we've been exploring, where God is trying to reshape the Israelites into a new kind of people in the world. And the next week, spoiler, we're actually going to look at how the entire biblical story is actually pointing to a moment like this, when God can dwell in a world with us once more. But for this week, like I said, we're going to dive into how God dwelling with his people is meant to be something that transforms them, that reshapes them, that turns them into something new. And we're going to explore this by talking about physical space. Namely, we're going to talk about how physical spaces direct us, shape us, teach us, and have a dramatic impact on who we are as human beings. Now, the use of physical space to teach and shape people isn't something that you probably think about very often. You see, we live in a world, a modern world, in which we are a mostly literate society. That means that most of the people you're going to come across can read or write to some degree. And this is a very good thing, but it has a dramatic impact on how we think about learning. Because what you find is that most of us, I would bet, think about learning as something that is entirely cognitive. It takes place all in your brain through the transfer of information. Am I right? It's this thing that you get when someone lectures to you, an expert teaching a pupil, or when you read and you gather information from a book, or when you write and create ideas. And while these are critical forms of learning, this overemphasis on the cognitive side of education has led us to undervalue and quite frankly neglect how important physical space is as a tool for teaching people. You see, I don't know if you know this, but we are meat bags. It's true. You are just a bunch of physicality. And because of that, because you're a physical being, how you engage with our physical world has a dramatic impact on who you are, whether you acknowledge it or not. And this is just something we've lost sight of because how we use our physicality really does a lot to direct us anytime we enter a room. And though it's been forgotten, I have a couple of examples that you'll probably relate to. So first, who here went to school growing up? Awesome. <laughs> So when you went into a classroom growing up, how was it arranged? Rows? Yeah. And was there someone up front? And were you all facing in one direction? What does the setup of that room teach you about why you're in that space? You are there to learn. Not just from anything, from that expert. The very setup of the room is shaping children to know why they are there what they are meant to do, and who they're meant to learn from. It's shaping them, the use of this physical space. Or how about we contrast that with another example? How do you sit around your dinner table? 
Do you sit with someone at the front and you're all in rows facing them? No, because it's a different space. What do we do? We sit around the table facing each other, which teaches us something, doesn't it? We are equals. We are intimate. We are family. There's not the power dynamic of the classroom going on. It's a different setting, and we're learning all of that without me saying a single word in those situations, aren't we? We are just learning what it means to be family and what it means to be intimate. Or how about church? How about this space? Usually our rows are set up in a half circle facing what? Me. Don't blow my head up too much. (laughs) The stage, right? And on that stage, we have musical worship. We sing together, and then we have someone who teaches us about the Word of God. So when we come in, the very way we set up this space is teaching us about why we are here. We're here to be changed. We're here to grow. We're here to hear from our Lord. We're here to side by side worship him together as a community. And sometimes you'll listen to me babble. But mostly it's the worshiping part, right? We're learning this, again, without a single word being spoken. This is the power of physical spaces. Whether we know it or not, like I said, they teach us and shape us in dramatic ways. And the most powerful way of all to impact human beings with a physical space is to change it outside of their expectations. It's to redesign it because implicitly you start to think that something new or something different must be going on when you walk into a room that isn't how you expect it to be at all. Is there a better example like what we did today for those of you who have been coming for a while? You walked in, and normally, like I said, our chairs are in a half circle. There's chairs in this middle part, too. And yet you come in, and it's all been rotated to face the center who knows what. And you're immediately aware that something different is going to happen this Sunday, aren't you? What were some of the thoughts and feelings that came in and you, when you walked in and saw that it was different? Just shout them out. What was that? Curiosity. Curiosity. Anyone else? Where do I sit? They took my chair. You church people. <laughs> what else? What else? What's happening? Yeah. Anyone uncomfortable? No. Mostly intrigued? Okay. I don't know. I feel uncomfortable when I walk in and I'm like, what is going on here? That's because I'm a control freak. Don't worry about that. So we just made a few changes, but we still felt that a shift had taken place, right? And once again, without me saying anything, we're asking questions like, why this change? What is going on here? What is Mike going to make us do today, right? All taught without me saying a single word. This is the power of physical space. It just has a way to viscerally and physically, in a very unique way of focusing us, directing us towards what is important in a space and why we are in that space at all. And because of that, it has a powerful way of changing us. And I bring this up because that's what we're going to learn about today. We are going to learn about how God, at the end of the Exodus story, in his last action with his people, uses physical space in his most important act of transformation yet in our story, using it to reorient their entire lives 
around one thing, his presence and his dwelling at the center of who they are as a people. That's where we're going to go today. We dive in with Exodus 25.1. The Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to bring me an offering. You are to receive the offering for me from everyone whose heart prompts them to give. These are the offerings you are to receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, and fine linen, goat hair, ram skins, dyed red, and any other type of durable leather. Acacia wood, olive oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, and onyx stones, and other gems to be mounted on the ephod and breastplate. Then have them make me a sanctuary, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. So God tells his people to collect from their belongings these materials to make something called a tabernacle for him. Who used that word this week? No one. Okay, but it's really not that complicated of a word. The word in Hebrew is mishkan, and it can be translated as an abode which is a place where someone dwells or lives. So what God is asking the Israelites to do is to create this structure that he is going to reside in, live when, dwell amongst them in. And the design, construction, and installment of this tabernacle actually takes up 11 chapters of the book of Exodus. It is almost one-fourth of the entire book. It's the part that in your devotional reading you always skip because you're like, boring, am I right? Who here reads about like the specific cubits and all that stuff? No, no one. But that would be a mistake. Well, maybe not. You don't have to read it. <laughs> but it would be a mistake to skip it. Because what I would posit is that this tabernacle idea, this dwelling place of God, is crucially important for understanding what God is trying to do, especially when it comes to reshaping his people. You see, this tabernacle thing has a lot to do with this concept of physical space and how it impacts us as human beings. So that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to start by looking at it from the outside, an overview of it, and then we're going to move into it and explore what's inside. So to begin, it, I want to show you that this is basically what the compound would have looked like. The tabernacle is the tent, and there's a surrounding courtyard area. So let's start with the placement of the tabernacle within the Israelite camp. So when you read the Exodus, the first thing you're going to notice is that the tabernacle was to be built at the center of their camp in the wilderness. And this is really important. You see, recall where we are in our story. The Israelites have been wandering through the desert for some time now, and they've been being led by God, showing up as one thing, a pillar of cloud and fire out in front of them, guiding them and leading them. So sit with that. When God has them build this tabernacle for his dwelling, where does God's presence move to? It moves from out in front to the center of their community. And this would have had a dramatic impact on how they set up their camp. You see, the Israelites were a tribal people. So as they traveled, they would make camp, and what they would probably do is set up their tents in whatever place they come to along tribal and family lines. No real organization. It probably would have just been a, some sort of militarized encampment. So what happens when God says that you're now going to camp around my dwelling space? What well, makes them do something like this? Suddenly, this people who is camping haphazardly has a new center 
of their community. Now, every time they move, every time they set up camp, what do they organize themselves around? The tabernacle, the dwelling space of God. This is a reorientation of their entire world around one thing, a new center, which was God's presence at the heart of their community. And more than that, it's also fascinating because it was designed to be moved. The tabernacle was built in a way that it could be deconstructed, carried with them, and then reset up. So what does this teach them about God's presence? Well, whenever they move in the wilderness, whatever wilderness they find themselves in, at the center of who they are will be one thing, a God who is present and does not leave them. Every time that they find a new home right at the heart, you're going to find their God. I mean, this is a powerful tool of education. We may think, what's the big deal? But I think that's because we are in a modern world. Think about it through the eyes of the Israelites. They live in a pre-literate society. The vast majority of people cannot read or write to any degree in any language. So when you're trying to teach somebody something in a pre-literate society, you have two options. Spoken word, storytelling, pictures, or physical learning. Show and tell, right? Watch me as I do this. So, for the average Israelite, this is a moment that would teach them something quite profound, wouldn't it? At the center of their community, there is one thing. It's no longer their tribe. It's no longer their status. It's no longer even their family. Certainly not their wealth. It is the place where their God dwells amongst them. It is the presence of God. That's the only thing at the center of who they are now. And this new center will always be with them, no matter where they go, giving them something new to organize around anywhere they are. I mean, we almost can't wrap our minds around how of a dramatic moment this would be for shaping a people. It's just something that would have blown their world up. I mean, you guys freaked out because I rotated some chairs. Now imagine it was your entire life. It was your entire house. It was how you exist in the world was turned completely around to face one new thing. Do you think that would impact how you see your world? Do you think that would impact how you live in your world? Do you think that would impact how you see yourself and why you were in a space? Apparently, you don't. That's a joke. Ha, ha, ha. But the reshaping doesn't stop. <laughs> but the reshaping doesn't stop just with how the camp is organized. I actually think it gets even more powerful when you look at what we find within it. And since we're sitting here talking about physical space, I figured the best way to teach you would be to use physical space. So we are going to journey into the tabernacle of God together today. Someone's excited about it. I got like one person. So we're going to walk through this. And what I would say is I would start out by pointing out that the tabernacle was within basically this compound. So within the Israel camp, you would find these poles that worked as barriers, right? That would be set up, that would divide the normal space of the camp and the space where God dwells. Again, we think, so what? But already this is teaching you something, isn't it? There is a distinction between where God dwells and everything else in our world. There's something unique, set apart, important. 
different going on here. And when you walked in, you would be immediately struck by something else. You see, the outside curtains or drapery that they would hung out would be these animal furs or dried skins, very coarse. And yet the moment you walk in, as you go deeper into it, the entire fabric of it changes. It became rich, smooth, these linens, these beautiful pieces of ornamentation. So literally, you come in, it all looks coarse, and as you go deeper, the beauty of it, the ornamentation of it, the color of it, the vibrance of it lights up. What do you think this is teaching a preliterate people? Well, it means that you are approaching something, what, transcendent, something defined by life, something defined by beauty, abundance, holiness. As you enter the space, you're being taught that there's something very important at the heart of this, right? So you would enter in, and we're just going to walk through some of the objects and some of the spaces that you would find within the tabernacle itself, because it's all set up in a deeply symbolic way that's very powerful, I think, when we come to understand it. So the first thing you would do is you would enter this wide-open courtyard, and you would find two artifacts right next to each other, this thing called the lavar and this thing called the altar. So we're going to start with the lavar. Lavar was this big basin of water, pretty much, and it was used by the priests who came in to the tabernacle to wash themselves. What does this teach us? It teaches us that when we approach the presence of God, we need to go through some level of respect, a symbol that we know that you don't just walk up to the divine presence without maybe washing your hands a little bit first. Who walks into their mom's house with their dirty shoes on? You don't. It's a sign of honor, right? We just take part in this ritual of purification. The next thing was this altar. And this was actually at the very front when you came in. So the altar is something that's entirely alien to us in our culture. It comes from a time in our world in which sacrifice was an incredibly common form of religious practice something that we actually really can't wrap our minds around because we just don't see it every day. But for the Israelites, sacrifice was a huge part of how they practiced their religion. And the altar was meant to serve all sorts of purposes revolving around the sacrificial system and this acceptance of offerings for God. So the most common one that you've probably heard from is that it was used as a way of symbolizing the atonement of sin or the reconciling of a broken relationship. And what this means is that in the Israelite culture, in their religion, they believed that, for example, I may wrong God, or I may wrong one of you. I may break a commandment, I may take something from you, I may hurt you, and in that moment, I need to do something to make that relationship right again. There is something that I need to do that needs to take place for us to return to how things were before I made whatever mistake I made. And they believed that the heart of that was sacrifice. So what would happen? Let's say I wronged you. Let's say I wronged God. I would come to the tabernacle, and with the priest, I would give them an animal or a piece of my crop, something of great value to me. And basically, I would watch it be given away. I would say, this is something that's important to me. Take it to show my recompense, to show my remorse, to show my desire to make amends. And the priests would then take it, they would ritually cut it apart, they would break it into pieces, and part of it would be burned up entirely on the altar. 
Another part of it would be turned into a meal between the parties. So stop. What is this teaching me, again, as an average Israelite? One, part of it's burned up entirely. What does that teach me about reconciliation and forgiveness? When I come there, I show my remorse, I give this thing that's of value to me, and then I watch it go away. I watch what burns away in there. It's not just the sacrifice, it's the resentment. It's the conflict. It's the pain. It's the wound. It's the hurt. Burned away by my willingness to come to the altar. And then what happens after that? There's a meal, a celebration of the reconciliation that has taken place because this God celebrates when people come together and make amends and make things right. This is a powerful tool for teaching them how to live together as a community and with him. And it's not just, atonement was not just the only thing the altar was used for. The sacrifices and offerings were also incredibly important for all sorts of other things. You would use them when you made commitments, covenants, or vows to each other. You and me, we want to form a contract, or me and someone want to get married, there would be a sacrifice involved, an offering involved, to show our commitment. They were used for things like uh, offerings of gratitude. So when my crop comes in, and it's an abundant harvest, I would give the first fruits of it to the altar. And I would say, God, thank you for all that you've given me. I want to give part of it back to show you how thankful I am. Or maybe you would see this in the religious festivals, in the religious ceremonies of the Israelites. They would use the altar to remember things like the Exodus, the Passover, these common festivals they would hold to remember their own story. All of these things revolved in some way around the altar. It was just a powerful tool of teaching them physically who they are as a people and why they exist in this world and who the God at the center of them is. But there's all sorts of other things going on in this room. So once you exit the courtyard, you're going to enter a structure. You see it right there. And this is the tabernacle structure itself. And this tabernacle structure is divided into two rooms. And as you approach it, again, the ornamentation, the beauty, the color, the life is growing dramatically because you're getting closer and closer to the place where God dwells. So the first place you would enter, the first space in this structure is called the holy place. And it is a beautiful room with a number of artifacts. So on one side, you would come up and you would find a table covered in gold. And it was called the table of presence or the table of shoe bread. Now, on this table was 12 loaves of bread. Why does that matter? Well, first, in the ancient world, bread was a sign of the divine presence. It was a very common offering that you would put before a temple or a shrine to show that the God was present there. But more than that, why 12? The Israelites, as a tribal people, were broken into 12 tribes or families. So what does this teach them about who they are? At the center of God's dwelling place is a symbol for the entire Israelite community being given over as an offering fully to the God who dwells amongst them. A symbol that for in perpetuity, they were being offered as his people, a living sacrifice in how they live in the world. I think that's a beautiful symbol. And on the other side of the room, you found the lampstand. Who here has heard of a menorah? Ding, 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 ding. You're welcome. So you found, 
This carefully designed and gold-ornamented and jeweled lampstand, a six-branch, seven-candle menorah that was perpetually kept burning, providing light within the holy space. Now, again, as someone who can't read and you're trying to figure out who the God who dwells here is, what is this teaching you about his character, about who he is? Is he a God of darkness? Or is he a God who lights up dark places? Is he a God of light? I mean, you come into this room and what you realize is that you're encountering a God who defines himself by a light shining in a dark world. And more than that, you're reminded that the heart of who you are as a people is a divine light that is supposed to shine out of you into a world that is often dark. I mean, this is a powerful teaching tool about who this God is and how he shines in our world. And then last, we come to a second altar. It's the altar of incense, and this was used for very different reasons. The altar of incense was this basically altar where they would burn good-smelling incense at several times throughout the day. Now, why is this important? Well, one, I don't know if you know this, the ancient world did not smell good. It was a gross place. (laughs) So you come into this space, and immediately the air changes. We're coming into contact with a God that brings a fresh aroma to the world. But more than that, what they would do is they'd burn the incense and they would watch the smoke go up and dissipate and they would say the prayers and the petitions of God's people rise to him like a pleasing aroma. That this is a God that receives the care, the love, the worship, the relationship of his people as something that he finds deeply desirable. Again, you can't read. Is this teaching you about who this God is and what he thinks of you? I think so. I think so. And then we get to our main event. We pass through a very thick veil to this other part of the tabernacle. It is the part of the tabernacle that is the most important space of the whole thing. It's called the most holy place, which is a very original name. But it's also called the Holy of Holies. And this space is critically and critically important. You see, the Holy of Holies was the place where the Israelites believed the very presence of God existed. In other words, you can't enter this space without coming into direct contact with the infinite God of our universe. It was considered the most transcendent, the most holy, the most important, the most beautiful place in the entire world in Judaic thought. And It was so holy that actually you could only one person could enter it, the high priest, the leader of the Jewish religious system, and he could only enter it once a year. He would only enter into the direct presence of God on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the most important holiday in the entire Jewish religion. It was this day where they believed that no matter what they had done as a people, they would come before God, they would pray, they would fast, they would Sabbath, and God would reconcile them as a people back to himself. It's basically the ultimate day of renewal and restoration in the Jewish faith. That's the only day that one could enter the holy of holies, the direct presence of God. And when you entered the direct presence of God, things were made right. Again, that is profound symbolism for this people. And when you entered it, you found one thing. It was this ornate ark, a case, 
that had these basically angels embroidered on or molded into it, these giant wings that would come up. Now, I don't have angels. I just have this weird-looking unicorn. But this is actually probably closer to an angel than what you're thinking of. Because we always think of angels as like babies with wings. But the Bible, they're terrifying. So they're more like beasts with wings, and they're supposed to be guardians or servants of the divine space. So when you walk up to the ark, it's covered in gold, it's ornate, it's beautiful, and it has the very symbol of entering God's space on it. It's not this. Don't worry about that. Our God's bigger than that. Uh, and you'd come up to it, and within it was one thing. It was a shining light that melted Nazi faces. You guys need to see Indiana Jones. <laughs> they got it. No, 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 no. Within it were three of our final artifacts. And these are, these are critically important. So the first one that you would find within it was the two stone tablets that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai with the ten commandments engraved on it, which was a symbol of who they are as a people. At the heart of their, their very existence was a covenant relationship with God, and this was the defining document of it, a document that reminded them that they are a people transformed into a new humanity in the world by the presence of the God that they worship, a people that centered their entire life around God, a people that showed deep respect for all life, a people who live out the healing of our world and how they exist within it, the kind of people God has been shaping over the course of the Exodus story. The second thing you would find was a golden urn with manna in it. And if you haven't been coming through this series, manna was the bread that God gave his people to keep them alive in the wilderness. It was this great act of provision that was meant to make them into a generous community in the world. So, what else is in this covenant, or this Ark of Covenant? Well, it's a reminder of God's provision for them, of God's care, of how God took care of them and wants to see them take care of others like he did. And then finally, we find this thing that's Aaron's staff. And we haven't really talked about this, at least in this series, but Aaron's staff, or rod, was a central tool used in the liberation of the Israelite people from Egypt. It was the item that was used in the confrontation between Moses and Pharaoh. So what is the symbol at the heart of their people? It's a symbol that God has liberated them, that God heard their oppression and set them free. So let's sit with this for a second. Let's wrap our minds around what this would do for a people. At the center of who they are is God's dwelling space. And what goes on in God's dwelling space, what goes on where God's presence resides in the most holy, divine, and transcendent place imaginable? Well, you find the answer to that in the artifacts there. What goes on in it is God's intimate relationship with his people. What goes on in it is a reminder that they are provided for that maybe they don't have to be so anxious or greedy in this world. Maybe they can live a different way. What goes on in it is a reminder that they were once slaves and now they are free people because God cared enough about them to hear their cries and to make that happen. Do you think waking up every day and looking at that sinner might change how you exist in the world? I think so. I mean, think about how all of this would have hit with the average Israelite person Every day, they look to the center of their people and they see this God choosing to dwell amongst them intimately, saying, I want a relationship with you. Every day, they wake up and they see that God moves with them, 
that this God is never going to leave them alone, that anywhere they are in the wilderness, God is at the center of who they are, reorienting them around his presence. Every day they wake up and they realize that the very first thing that you see when you walk into God's dwelling space is a way to make relationships right again. That we have a God who wants more than anything reconciliation, forgiveness, mercy, love. The renewal of broken relationships. This is a physical way of teaching us who this God is. He's a God who lights up our world. He's a God who wants all of us as an offering to him, not because he's selfish, but because he wants to use us for the good of healing. He's a God who receives us, our prayers, our relationship as a pleasing aroma. He's a God that in his holiest space reminds us of our story, one of relationship, provision, and liberation. The average Israelite has a new center to their life, and it's the presence of this God and the fullness of his character reshaping their entire world around who he is, what he wants to do, and how he wants to go about doing it. Using their very space to reorient them around the God of the Exodus. I just think that's power. I just think that's the, it's just cool, right? I don't have words for it. This is how this God dwells with his people. So I just want to close by posing a few questions, some questions that I think we consider when we look at God's tabernacle, when we look at how he dwells in our world. And, and I just want to think through these questions. I want to sit with them as we head into this time of communion and worship. Namely, what part of this what part of this God who dwells do you need to hear spoken over you today? So it might be for you that you need to hear about the lavar or the altar. Maybe there's just something in your life, a broken relationship, a resentment, a wound, that you need to reconcile to yourself, to God, to the other person. There's just something that is weighing you down that you need to watch get burned up or washed away. Because quite frankly, it's just making you sick. And this God wants to take it from you. Or maybe you need to think about the lampstand. Maybe you live in a world that you see as dark, as hopeless, as barren. And this God is trying to tell you that the center of who you are is a light. A God that shines. A God that says that as long as you have breath and even after that, there is hope in this world because I am in this world. Maybe you just need to hope again, coming to a God of light. Or maybe you need to come to the table of presence. Maybe there's a part of you that you've just held back from God for a long time. Maybe it's a brokenness. Maybe it's a spiritual thing. Maybe it's an emotional thing. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's your wealth. Maybe it's your gifts. But there's something that you have not brought before the presence of God and said, have all of me. And that's what this table's calling you to do today. Or maybe, maybe you need to come to the altar of incense. Maybe you just have come to believe that you're not lovable, that you're not acceptable, that God doesn't care for you, that he's not pleased with you. What would it mean to hear that God looks at you and says, our relationship is a pleasing aroma 
to me and in our world. I receive it with deep joy. I receive you with deep joy. Or finally, maybe you need to look at the ark. Maybe you need to look at the Ten Commandments. Maybe you need to look at the urn. Maybe you need to look at the rod. Because what you need to remember is that this God wants a relationship with you. This God provides for you. And this God has spoken freedom over you. Maybe you just need to remember this story. Because for some reason, despite the liberation God has pronounced, you still find yourself in chains. And what you need to hear today is that this God is in the business of breaking them. Maybe you just need to remember his story and let it become your story. These are what I want you to consider in this time. I want you to come to the bread and the cup of communion. I want you to come to the table. I want you to come to the altar. And remember that when you do so, you come into the very presence of a God who dwells. I want you to know that the God of the Exodus is right here, right now, looking to meet you here. And all you have to do is to walk into his dwelling space, which is right here. So, ask yourself these questions. And then, as we've talked about today, let your heart, your eyes, your mind, your body reorient itself towards the God who is here with us. Amen. Amen. Amen.